0: Father, thank you as we enter into your word We are so very grateful for it Uh, We are inspired by it, encouraged by it Lord, help us to grow as we serve you Thank you, Lord Amen Well, welcome to part one of a short message series The Elijah Chronicles We're taking the next two weeks to study perhaps one of the most Colourful and remarkable men of the Old Testament Elijah and these two messages certainly by no means will cover all who Elijah was, but I've selected two scenes that uh, I found very interesting, and hopefully you will too. Thanks, we'll switch on to the next slide. Now the um, picture you see there on screen is not Israel. It's a statue of the prophet Elijah on a high pedestal on Mount Carmel, and the insert picture on the left enlarges it, and there stands the bearded prophet with a large knife in his hand raised high above his head and the inscription on the base refers to the unforgettable conflict that we've all just heard this morning um, and that we're going to consider today somewhere near the peak of this very mountain Mount Carmel this prophet of God stood face to face with the prophets of Baal called down a dramatic fiery proof of which one was the true God deserving of full human worship and worthy of devoted obedience now because of what Elijah is about to do it is important that we, we understand the backstory that brought this about, very important so just hold with me as, as we just put ourselves into context so we'll go to the next slide and here we have a, a part of an Old Testament timeline Now, the timeline starts on the left-hand side with the conquest of Canaan. That's the book of Joshua. And after that, it moves into this section here, yellow, the time of Judges. This was um, roughly a 400-year period where Israel is ruled by selected leaders called Judges that God raised up at specific points. Now, at the close of this period, Judges, the Philistines, uh, a neighboring nation that gave Israel any amount of problems, were at the peak of their menace Leadership in Israel was becoming an acute problem at this point And this inevitably led to the rise of the monarchy As the people craved to be led like the nations who surrounded them Sadly, however, well actually Under the guidance of the last judge, Samuel The last leader of that period The United Kingdom began The nation now had a king beginning with Saul and then David who was to become the standard by which all other kings were going to be judged. And this climaxed in Israel's golden age under David's son Solomon. Solomon, however, led very carelessly towards the end of his reign and that coupled with a very high tax burden to fund his extravagant reign meant that when he died, ten tribes arranged a meeting with Solomon's son and successor Rehoboam where they asked for some relief from these extreme demands but Rehoboam was not a patch on his father in terms of wisdom and he dealt with their request very arrogantly and he told them well if you thought life was tough under Solomon you haven't seen anything yet get used to it now this very severe response led to a civil breach and as you can see at the right hand side now of our timeline the ten northern tribes split away creating what never healed the divided kingdom the northern ten tribes often just called Israel set themselves up with a new king and that left just two tribes in the now southern kingdom usually called Judah now it's to the northern kingdom that we turn our focus And it's here that God is going to send Elijah. And you can see we have a beautiful yellow arrow to show where he appears in the picture and where the text that you heard read today, that is the point in time that this event occurs. Now from where you see the northern kingdom begin to where Elijah appears, this is a period of about 50 through 60 years. Seven kings had ruled during this time and they were all, from God's perspective at least, absolute shockers but they all had one thing in common, they intentionally led the people away from serving the true God to serving false gods the people were no worsh- were no longer worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they were worshipping false gods that promised if you worship me, I'll make your crops go, no, worship me and I'll give you a good life now here's the key that's going to appear more than once during this morning. False God's promise, what only the true God provides. False God's promise, what only the true God provides. Now the result of these kings' leadership was, it makes, <laughs> it makes really bad reading, it really does. Bloodshed and assassinations, murder, malice, intrigue, immorality, conspiracy, deception, Hatred, idolatry, a really bad mix But they were nothing In comparison to king number 8 And his really scary wife Enter king Ahab And the Bible writers cut straight to the chase When they talk about king Ahab When he introduces him, the writer says 1 Kings 16 Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord Than any of the kings that were before him And they were bad King Ahab promoted the worst of idol worship Involving the most horrific practices But he compounded it all By marrying Jezebel, the daughter of a king From a neighboring kingdom Something that God had said, do not do this Now as time went on It became evident that He was was really Jezebel Who ruled the kingdom Ahab took a rather passive role She ruled Ahab. She ruled Israel. At her direction, Baal worship increased and she systematically killed all who followed Yahweh, the true God. These were very, very scary times for the faithful few. The further impact of this marriage would even be felt into the southern kingdom, Judah, when later one of their kings married Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. And as it eventuated, Athaliah rose to power in Judah and she systematically killed off all the royal family bar one child who was hidden away. She almost decimated the entire royal family. This was a very scary time. So this is a crisis point in Israel's history and it's not just... It's beyond serious. This is beyond serious. The entire promises of God, of a Savior, through the royal line of David was hanging in the balance because this king and his scary wife were pushing Israel to these places. But God is going to move in both judgment and grace. In judgment because something had to be done, but in grace because God is going to give Israel a fresh vision of the true God And give her the opportunity to um, seek his forgiveness And to seek his mercy before it was too late So enter Elijah Who confronts the king and says Because of your idolatry God sent me to tell you that it's not going to rain Until God tells me to pray and asks it to rain And so begins a major drought And a complete economic disaster follows And no sooner has Elijah faced off With Ahab, then God sends Elijah into a period of hiding and preparation for the next three years. All sorts of interesting things happen to him. I'll allow you to read those um, yourself at home. But throughout this three-year period, God is teaching and shaping and molding Elijah to be an even more powerful man of God. But now the three years is up. Elijah is prepared, well-prepared, and well prepared he needed to be for this next phase of the story Which is our focus today And so we step into today's verses Thanks, we'll just pop that up So just in case you doze off And you wake up with a start And wonder where you're supposed to be A quick gaze up there We'll give you a quick reference point There we go In First Kings chapter 17 God told Elijah Go and hide Chapter 18 opens After a long time in the third year The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, verse 16, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Scholars of Hebrew tell us that the word that's translated troubler there on occasions is used to mean viper or asp or snake. So Ahab is showing absolutely no enthusiasm in meeting Elijah. Hey, you low-down, slithering, slimy snake in the grass, is that you? It's all your fault that this terrible stuff is happening. But (laughs) Elijah, he is Fresh off a three-year training program, he is not in the slightest bit intimidated by Ahab. Not in the least. And he fired straight back and put the blame firmly where it belonged. Verse 18. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baal's. Don't you blame me for what's happening, Elijah was saying. This drought of judgment is because of people like you. You're the reason that there's no rain and you have willfully broken God's commandments. You're serving false gods and you're worshipping idols. Elijah's message was severe and it was sharp because it needed to be. Ahab had to wake up. He was seriously breaking the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me Exodus 20 Now God's judgment was real but his hand of grace was ready too Ahab needed to know again that the God of heaven is supreme and through Elijah he was ready to prove it Now this wonderful quality of God's grace Peter reminds us of uh, reminds us of this in his second letter There people were mocking about the return of Christ because uh, nothing seemed to be happening, but Peter goes ahead and explains. Second Peter three nine, he says, "The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance." God's first motivation is grace. In today's text, in grace. He is reaching out afresh to Israel to turn their hearts back to him before things get even worse. He's longing to bless Israel if they would only respond. And today it remains the same. Nothing has changed. God longs to bring refreshment and spiritual blessing and healing to anyone who will respond to the message of Jesus. So the showdown began. Ahab versus Elijah. Although that's not strictly true, uh, because this is more a showdown between idolatry and the living God, between a false God and the true God. And the challenge is going to be choose your God. And that's the same challenge that we all have to face. Even as Christians, as we'll see, we can set up idols and dethrone the place where God should have in our lives. This challenge is as alive and well as when Elijah stepped onto the stage. So the contest begins and Elijah offers a plan. Verse 19, King, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And here is where Elijah now sets out the challenge. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. I don't think Elijah would really change his message one bit if he was standing here today. I think he may perhaps word it like this. Quit wavering. Oh God, hear my prayers, but I don't want to obey your commandments. Quit wavering, he would say. Choose. Oh God, I want to do all your good things, but I don't want to stop my bad things. Quit wavering, Elijah would say. Choose. Quit claiming Christ and wanting the benefits and not being unwilling to sacrifice. Quit wavering. Choose. Now, Before we finish the story, I think it might be helpful if we just clarify what we mean by idolatry since the showdown to come is between God and idolatry. Who is the true God? Who will you serve? Webster's Dictionary actually gives quite a good definition. It says, quote, The worship of idols, uh, idolatry is, the worship of idols or excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or thing. Or we can summarize it in another way. Someone put it this way. An idol is anything that replaces the one true God, and I would add, and becomes the thing that drives us. Let me repeat that one. An idol is anything that replaces the one true God and becomes the thing that drives us. Here's that key again. False gods promise what only the true God provides. When Jesus was asked, Lord, what's the most important commandment? Jesus didn't bat an eye. He just went straight into it. He said, Above all else, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Mark chapter 8. Above all else in our lives as believers, as followers of Jesus, God wants us to have wants to have, I beg your pardon, all of our heart, our worship, our devotion, and our focus, and our adoration. And he deserves it. We know that. He deserves that. Remember, false gods promise only what the true God can provide. In our Western world, we don't bow down to physical idols like in our story from Elijah. The modern form of idolatry seems to have at its core self. This brand of idolatry can take all sorts of shapes and all sorts of forms but they all achieve one thing. They turn our hearts away from God and make us follow something false. The true God, the false. Some time ago my wife bought a book and she left it sitting on the kitchen table it had a stirring title, or rather it had a title that stirred my interest, I should say Telling Yourself the Truth by William Backus and Marie Chapian. So I picked it up in an interest and I glossed through the chapter titles and I, one really caught my eye and I had to go straight straight there. The chapter title was Misbeliefs Guaranteed to Make You Miserable oh, What a great, I thought, ooh, I said that is interesting and I opened it up and I had a thumb through and the chapter as I was skimming through it went on to explain how misbeliefs or untruths can set themselves up in our hearts and become the God we serve. This kind of thing. The true way. This becomes the focus instead of here. Now, one example that they gave was this. Now, I might add, I better tell you this, I haven't read this book all the way through even now so I can't, I'm not necessarily endorsing the book, but I assume it's pretty promising because of this chapter. But I like what, it, what, I like what they had to say in regard to this. Uh, one example they gave of how misbeliefs or untruths can set themselves up as the path that we're following was this. Here's one thought. I must have what I want in order to be happy. I want it, therefore I should have it. And this attitude is all over the television. Um, This idol definitely has a slave-driving quality that will offer none of what it promises. And it has its roots in the idol of covetousness. That's a hard word to say. Covetousness and jealousy. If you follow this God, this idol, this untruth, the authors outline some of the attitudes that they believe we will experience. And none of what I'm about to read to you, of course, will prove true, because it's over here. It's not over here. So let's have a look at what they suggest. Misbelief or idol. I must get what I want in order to be happy. I want it, therefore I should have it. Here are the accompanying attitudes that will unfold your life. It's terrible if I don't get what I want. My wants are the most important thing in the world, Doing without is intense suffering If other people have what I want And I don't have it, it's unfair I have to do all I can to get what I want I'm happy when I have what I want Other people must be as frustrated and unhappy as I have If they don't have what they want Now these next two, these these are where it's starting to get serious. Remember, the focus is not here. The focus is over here. And now these sorts of untruths begin to sneak in. If I don't have what I want, there must be something wrong with me as a Christian. If I don't have what I want, God must not hear my prayers. It's getting into serious territory. The truth is none of that. Absolutely none of that. Here is the truth and the freedom found as we move back from here to here and serve the true God. These then, Jesus, will shape and mold our attitudes, and this is the end result. God loves me and always hears my prayers. The Bible says that the Lord will never leave me or forsake me, therefore I know that everything in my life is under his watchful eye. It's not terrible when my every whim isn't gratified. It is not terrible when my every need isn't met on my terms and time schedule. It may be uncomfortable or inconvenient to do without certain things, but I can do it. It is well with my soul. I will tell myself the truth. I can do without. I can be hassled and annoyed from time to time. But I know in the recesses of my very being that through it all, I choose it to be well with my soul. Now, these next three I like very much. I give others the right to be more successful than I and to have what I want. How about that for a switch? I set myself free from covetousness. I refuse to be a jealous person. It is well with my soul. I choose to be content with that which the Lord allows into my life which is what our pastor was talking about a couple of messages ago. And here's the one I think that Elijah would give such firm approval to and really this is the whole point of this entire scene of Elijah. I choose to love the Lord Jesus more than my own wants and that's why I give all my wants to him, to bestow, to bless and to withhold or to change as he sees fit. I thought that was a a very good thing in that book. I really did. I found that most helpful. hope you found it helpful. False God's promise. False God's promise. What only the true God provides. Yeah? And it goes on. We can make idols out of our careers, our looks, our children. It goes on and on. But they all have one thing in common. Our devotion to God is replaced by something else. And that something else is in the driver's seat. So if Elijah was here today I'm sure he would say to us, if Jesus, if Jesus is the son of God, the one true God, then quit wavering. Serve him with all your heart. The challenge remains. Back to the showdown, here's what Elijah does. Get two bulls for me, he says, one for you, one for me, and we're both going to build an altar and we're going to sacrifice these. Picking up in verse 24. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from noon till, from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they all danced around the altar that they had made. Now this, this is where the story gets really funny. It's now midday. All this has been going on for several hours now, and nothing has happened. Elijah starts to needle them just a bit and starts making fun of them, verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Now, as far as possible, (laughs) as far as possible, Elijah's actually really enjoying the moment. Funny thing, your God, maybe he's having a nana-nap. But where he says, he is busy. The LIV translation here is way too nice. Very, very nice indeed. My ESV Bible, which follows a slightly different translation methodology, I think it hits a total home run on this one and demonstrates how Elijah is really digging in. Here's what he says. Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or wait for it, or he's relieving himself. Seriously, it's right there. Yes, you heard it right. Maybe your God is relieving himself. Maybe he's grabbed the newspaper and headed off to the loo. Well, this predictably really irritated the prophets of Baal. And at no end, and they really switched into overdrive. Verse 28, so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Why? Because false gods promise what only the true God provides. Now even though I had a great deal of amusement from that part of the story, and still do, In the back of my mind, something was kind of rolling around and was niggling me just a little bit. And I finally worked out what it was. Elijah is basically mocking and making fun of their beliefs. Does that then give us permission to do the same? If Elijah did it, can we do that? When we share about Jesus, can we be rude or pejorative or sneering towards those who hold a different view to us? Well, As far as I'm concerned, absolutely not. I believe that we're given very clear clear guidance on this. And Peter, again, Peter, I think, gives us perhaps within a single verse the clearest instruction, though there's other verses we could draw on. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always... Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with... Can anyone finish that? Gentleness and respect. Let me just repeat Peter's instruction to us. But do this, the sharing of Jesus, with gentleness and respect. So why is it okay for Elijah to do the opposite then? Now, I did actually hear someone give quite a thorough treatment of this because they obviously had the same thought going in their mind. But at its simplest, which is about the best that I can grasp, Elijah was under the old covenant. We are living this side of the cross. We're under the new covenant with the new life in Jesus. And secondly, this was a unique and very serious national crisis that Elijah was facing and this required major intervention before it was too late very unique circumstances are going on here but in terms of us sharing about Jesus we have a wonderful message we simply have to share it relevantly courteously, intelligently to the community and the culture that we are part of God can do the rest but mocking other people's beliefs and standing as if we are superior that is not to be done in my opinion It is not to be done. We are to show gentleness and respect. Quote, unquote, Peter. Okay, let's see the challenge unfold. We're getting near the climax now. Finally, the day grew later, and Elijah kind of unfolded his arms and took control. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sears of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again. He said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And he did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. <laughs> there was a Sunday school teacher who was teaching this to the class and she had just uh, done all this and described the part all the water going on. And then she said, can anyone tell me why Elijah had asked the people to pour water on the altar? And one little girl excitedly leapt up assuredly and said, to make the gravy. (laughs) That is so not the right answer. A good answer, but not the right answer. The correct answer to the question, of course, is that by saturating the whole area with water meant that there was absolutely no possibility of natural combustion. If this was consumed by fire, it had to be the Lord's doing. Verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and what did he do? He prayed. A simple prayer of faith. There's no pleading, there's no screaming, there's no shouting, just a plainly spoken request that God would provide and prove all, (laughs) that he would prove to all that he alone is God. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me and don't miss the compassion of the prophet here and the gracious desire of God. O Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, our God, that you are turning their hearts back again. Well, the contrast is stunning. The response, immediate. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God answered Elijah's prayer. But this brought not only fire, more importantly, it turned the hearts of the people back to God. Part of me when I got to this point in the story just began really just indulging in some nonsense thinking, really. I mean, why doesn't God do a few more impressive things like that? I mean it would be quite it could be quite helpful in convincing the growing number of New Zealanders, happily promoting atheism why doesn't he show himself like that? I mean, imagine a a fire show out in the car park. It would certainly sharpen up our our worship, for sure. But seriously, that's just lightweight nonsense thinking for me, really. But then my thinking moved on to things that were more accurate. As I realized how in so much of an infinitely more beautiful way, just how God showed himself to us, 2,000 years ago when he left heaven, became one of us in the person of his son, Jesus, and lived a perfect and sinless life. He died on the cross. He raised from the dead again so that we could know forgiveness and above all to know him, the true God. And when you do know him through Jesus, then all the false gods, all the false thinking, they just gradually fall away. And if Elijah were living today, I think he'd say, come on church, quit wavering. If you know God for who he is, you will never be tempted to serve false gods or rush after false truths. Because false gods promise what only the true God provides. And the one true God is so much greater. The one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord God Almighty, Trinity in unity, unity in Trinity, the one true God. Let's pray. Our Father, please give us eyes to see the areas in our lives where you are not Lord, areas that we give our love to that have really become idols, they've really become sin. Oh, Lord, help us to turn our hearts back to you again in full confidence that you are Lord. Be our Lord again. Forgive us, we pray. Amen.